God, we are grateful for your presence. Whether we're sitting at home, sitting here in the building, we are grateful that you are with us. We are grateful that we are one with you and that you unify us together. I'm so grateful for our church family, for this community, for what you're doing in this place, how you're using us, how you're making us more into your image, how you care for us. And God, I pray that you would remind us this morning of how much you care about us. You know better than any of us the struggles that we have, the things that we are carrying, the things that we brought in this morning. I pray that you would let us know how much you care, that you are not indifferent, that you are not far off, but you are aware and you love us beyond what we can comprehend. I pray you would speak to our hearts this morning. Help us to hear from you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So we have been in this series called Different Jesus. And the idea of this is looking at how Jesus is really seen in Scripture, which is different many times than how people can understand him. When we started this series, I showed a lot of different pictures of things that ways that people have depicted Jesus in order to make him more relatable. And so we showed basketball playing Jesus, we talked about consoling Jesus, um, and of course, obviously, at work Jesus. And so we showed a lot of different images just to show what he was like. But then there was also a couple of of the disturbing pictures that I found, ripped Jesus and tatted Jesus. Now, nothing, um, absolutely nothing wrong with being that level of ripped, I mean, obviously, and nothing of that being that tatted, but they are kind of weird. Now, even if you don't connect with those pictures of Jesus, which I can understand maybe why, we do typically like the idea of a strong Jesus, a powerful Jesus, a Jesus that has it all together. That's what we like. That's what we connect with. And there's a lot of passages that talk about Jesus' strength, to talk about the fact that he was perfect. In fact, 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John 3 says, in him is no sin. So he never sinned in anything that he did. He was perfect. But then there are tons of passages that speak not only to Jesus' character, but also to his power and strength. We have passages that describe him as powerful and over all, that describe that he has authority over all and everything is under him. All of creation is in submission to Jesus, that he is glorious, that Jesus is everlasting, that everything is under his control, that he upholds all things, that he is the one who saves, that he has the power to perform miracles, that he has the power to forgive sins, that he has the power to give eternal life. And thank God that this is who Jesus is. Thank God that he is that powerful, that he is that strong, that that he is that mighty. But going exclusively off of a list like this, or even adding other things to it, we get the idea that Jesus was only strong and powerful, was always strong, that everything was always steady and great. 
But the Bible shows a different Jesus. It gives us a different reality of him. All the things that I shared about him and his strength and his sinlessness and everything, they are all true. But the scriptures add to them at the same time a different look at Jesus when we go to Gethsemane. At the bottom of the Mount of Olives is an area called Gethsemane. The Church of All Nations, that building that you see kind of right there in the middle, a little bit off left, that's the Church of All Nations. And that huge area of trees and everything kind of to the left and maybe even a little right to the picture, this would be Gethsemane. Sometimes we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not like rows of corn and carrots and things in our backyard. That's not the idea. It would be more the idea of a grove of olive trees. And this was a special place for Jesus and his disciples where they would come to this, these olive trees, this grove, as a frequent place for prayer. There's a cave up a little bit further up that hill, and they would even come and sleep there. This was their regular place to be. And this is where he goes in Matthew 26, where we see this starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here, while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now in verse 37, you heard it say that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. The idea of the word troubled there is feeling anxious. So to say that Jesus is sorrowful and feeling anxious, taking these things together, it's telling us that Jesus was feeling dread. Jesus was feeling a deep sense of dread about what was before him. In verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The, the phrase here, the picture that we have is of somebody at the deepest, lowest level of sorrow humanly possible. You can't get lower than this. You can't get hurting more than this. Jesus is in essence saying, I am so full of sorrow, it is killing me. This isn't the only place that we hear Jesus using, speaking of strong emotion or talk, using strong emotion. In John 11, we read about him sobbing at the death of a friend. In John 13, he is deeply disturbed by the idea that he's going to be betrayed. But here in the garden, there's an intensity to the emotions. And we can't ignore that reality. We can't downplay it. We can't minimize it. Like, oh yeah, maybe it was a little hard. In fact, scholar R.T. France says this, Seeing this phrase in a way that downplays the extreme emotions of Jesus, but rather takes it as saying, I am sad in the face of death, is a misreading of the text. This is beyond sad. I am so sorrowful, it is killing me. He is feeling sorrow and dread. Us reading this text correctly is not only important, it's powerful. 
He who knew no sin felt and experienced sorrow and dread. So that means experiencing sorrow and dread is not a sin. He who never did anything wrong did nothing wrong when he said, I am so full of sorrow, it is killing me. The big theological word that we use to talk about Jesus is the incarnation. And really the idea of this word is simply that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human, fully both at the same time. John 1:14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Philippians 2, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of his servant being made in human likeness. He was human, he was God, completely and fully. And so what that means is yes, he is over everything. He is glorious, he is everlasting. He is able to subdue all things. He is able to, has the power to perform miracles, the power to forgive sins. And at the same time, fully experience the human reality of sorrow and pain and dread and suffering in their fullness. He is glorious and sometimes glory weeps. He is all powerful and sometimes the powerful feel agony. This should be a huge comfort to us especially when we think about our own lives. The word Gethsemane means oil press. This is what an oil press in Jesus' time would have looked like. Huge stone wheel that no one could have just picked up by themselves. It's in this like pit area where all of the olives would be put in this place. And then somebody, can you get the next slide? Somebody would then go and they would start spinning it around. They would go move the wheel around and it would just crush all of the olives so the olive oil would then pour out a little spigot part that they had. This next image, you see that on the side here, the remnants of crushed olives on the side. This is the picture that we see. This is the perfect picture of what Jesus was experiencing in the garden. In fact, we're looking at the gospel according to Matthew right here, but when, in Luke's explanation of the gospel, he puts it this way. Being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The emotional weight of what Jesus experienced crushed him to the point of not only dread and sorrow coming out, but actual blood being pressed out of him. There are moments in life where we experience a pressing down feeling. We feel life pressing down on us. We feel crushed. And when that happens, whether it's job loss or friendships ending, mistreatment by others, sickness, facing death, the loss of a loved one, society's failures toward people, plans getting upended, racism, car accidents, loss of promotion. You have your example, 
bullying, whatever it might be, it crushes our spirits. It pushes down on us. And when it does, blood may not come out, but emotions do. When the weight of life pushes down on us, when it crushes us, sadness will come out. Dread will come out. Anger will come out. Uncertainty, exhaustion, anxiety, grief. Add a year-long global pandemic that is still very much going on onto everything in life, and it's asking for all of these things to be supersized. And that is what comes out. And that is okay. If we think about what it means, to, as we think about what it means to follow Jesus, it is both comforting and empowering to know that if it was not sin for Jesus to experience sorrow, then it is not sin for us to experience sorrow. If he if it was not sin for him to acknowledge, I am going through something so intensely, it's killing me, then it is not sin for you to acknowledge and say the same thing. If he did not minimize or write off his agony, then we should not minimize our own or what others experience. And we should find comfort in this. But what do we do with our emotions? I mean, we, can acknowledge, we acknowledge them. We need to acknowledge them. We're going to talk about that. What do we do with them? The new story of what is happening right now in the Suez Canal is just fascinating. Um, a 1,300-foot-long, 200,000-ton ship is stuck in a canal that's only 650 feet wide. This one incident is impacting all of global commerce. And so as far as right now, it's still stuck, right? I know that they're like kind of talking the tide and everything. So it's still happening. Now, something like this happens. Our, yeah, our evening talk show hosts have been helpful, but man, social media is coming through as it usually does. And so a couple things I found this week. Here's the first one. Having a nice time imagining in the, I'm the big boat. The world cries out for me to stop destroying global commerce. And my response, toot, toot. Next one. After years of Bitcoin and Reddit short selling and credit default swaps and a million other things I don't understand, it's so refreshing to hear that global commerce is in peril because a big boat got stuck in a canal. Does anybody relate to that? Like, I don't understand all this Bitcoin stuff, all this financial stuff, but, oh, a boat got stuck? Oh, I get that. That's good. Does anybody else understand that one? This is my favorite post I have seen all week about this situation. From Jurassic Park Updates, Supposed to have gotten a new dinosaur, was supposed to have been here yesterday, coming on a boat through the Suez Canal. <laughs> so that's really funny. Now, there's a ton more. That's not why we're here. I can share them later. But of all the humor that's been put up at this thing, the thing that's been super interesting is to see how people have used the, the images of this as a metaphor for dealing with our emotions. Look at some of these. Is it possible to emotionally relate to a container ship? Next one. Me changing the font on my to-do list. And most of the images around here are the little, little, little tiny bulldozer messing with the big, enormous ship. And if I'm a to-do list person, that definitely is relatable. Next one. 
Depression. Have you tried jogging? <laughs> Next. Constant anxiety and sense of existential dread thanks to the deadly global pandemic. Going for a walk. And then last one. The crushing despair of everything from the past year. You doing your best. That's the thing, though. We laugh because it's true, right? When you're in the middle of it, the things that people say to us to feel like we're trying to move this, the things that people suggest to us, the things that we try, it feels like a little bulldozer trying to move this huge vessel. And sometimes the things that we try or sometimes the things that we suggest even make things worse. Okay, that's it. No, no, that's it. What do we do then? Because we don't want to be stuck. And there's got to be something we can do with these things. Well, what can we learn from Jesus in the garden? He who was in the lowest point humanly possible. What does he model for us in those moments that we can bring into our own garden moments? And here's the first thing. We need to honestly name the emotions that we experience. We see Jesus doing this. You need to honestly name the emotions that you experience. No, remember specifically how the text talks about things. The narrative part, the narrator, if you will, he says, John, Matthew says, that he was sorrowful and troubled. But Jesus himself articulates to the other three, he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus names it. Typically, we speak language, though, that minimizes or masks what we're feeling rather than naming it. We minimize what we're feeling by comparing ourselves to others. Well, we're all just going through something, sticking to more generalized surface phrases, just really having a rough time right now, Maybe we mask things to present a strong front by redirecting to different tasks. Well, we'll get through it, just need to do this, just need to do this, to kind of more focus on to-dos by presenting a strong front. Uh, it's rough, but we're working hard, we keep going. Along with minimizing and masking, we can also spiritualize things. Yeah, this is hard, but God is good. This is really hard, but I mean, my joy is in the Lord. No... And yeah, that's true. But here's the thing, sometimes when things like that get said, Jesus was the most spiritual person in all of history. Jesus knew joy more than any of us, and he knew the reality of the goodness of God better than anyone. But he didn't use words like that that seem like praise, but could just be a false front to avoid dealing with something. Sometimes we use the religious language to sound spiritual when in reality we just don't want to deal with what's inside. Yes, my joy is in the Lord. Yes, God is always good. But right now my soul is sorrowful even to death. Acknowledging the one should never cancel out the other because that's what we see in Jesus. So we shouldn't minimize, we shouldn't mask, we shouldn't spiritualize Lament is a biblical principle that we are invited into. 
over and over throughout Scripture. Lament is modeled for people. We are invited to feel. Psalms, Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 6, my soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 38, my heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. We are invited to be present in our circumstances and be honest about our circumstances. When we go through life's worst seasons, when we are in the midst of the garden ourselves, we must speak our pain, name our struggles. To not do so ignores the biblical invitation and it doesn't help us. You are not a bottomless pit. Humans are not bottomless pits. To not acknowledge it, to not name it, to push it back down, that is going to come out somehow. If we don't acknowledge it, if we don't name it, and we just keep pushing it down, eventually we're going to fill up and it's going to burst. And anytime the emotions burst out on their own, it is always toxic. It is always damaging to us and to others. The only way for emotions and hurt and sorrow to come out in a healthy way is when we pull it out, when we name it. So you need to name what you're going through. What word best describes what you are experiencing? Jesus says, my soul is very sorrowful. How would you describe it? My soul is angry, hurt, confused, struggling, frustrated. How do you fill in that blank? Honestly name the emotions that you experience. Let me read the rest of the Gethsemane story to see a couple more things that Jesus modeled for us. It continues in verse 39. Going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, Jesus went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, Jesus went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We think about other ways that Jesus modeled for us how to deal with our own emotions in guarded moments. The second thing I see him doing here is inviting others into our experiences helps us move through them. Inviting others into your experiences helps you move through them. Jesus continually engaged others with what he was feeling. He brought the 12 along and asked them to pray. 
three, the, he shared with the three he was closest to the depth of his sorrow. In fact, don't miss the detail here. He asked the 12 to stay in and wait and pray, but it was to the three that he said, watch. Be here and watch. Watch over me. I need you to watch me. He didn't initially ask them to pray. He initially asked them, watch. And so what is that? Look at Jesus leaning into the human relationships. Michael Wilkins says this about this idea. Jesus does not ask them to pray but to watch. As he grievously anticipates his looming death, Jesus' overwhelming sorrow reveals a heart broken almost to the point of death itself because he knows that he will experience his father's forsakenness. This reveals the depth of Jesus' human relationships he feels is necessary to sustain him in his time of greatest needs. Jesus needed people to get him through this. It may be difficult to grasp that the Son of God had such needs, but to do so gives us a more adequate understanding of his incarnation. Jesus needed them to sustain him, to carry him. Jesus, in this moment, in asking them to watch over him, He is modeling and living out what we see other scriptures telling the church to be. In 1 Corinthians 12, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. In Galatians 6, carry each other's burdens. To watch Jesus, he wants them to suffer with him. He wants them to carry his burdens. And we need people to watch over us as well. We need people to suffer with us. We need people to carry our burdens with us. And so a couple things to think about with this. One, if you are someone who is invited into another's garden moment, someone approaches you with pain or a moment or struggle or hurt or whatever it is, there are some horrible ways to respond to that. One of the horrible ways to respond to that is just to skip over it. Too often people want to jump past the pain of a situation to only focus on the positive and what we can be grateful for. We do need to be reminded of God's goodness and what there is to be thankful for, but jumping past what they're experiencing can actually do more damage to a person compared to the healing impact of lament. Because typically what we do when we jump over something is we just feel really awkward and we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. And we need to not try to do something. We need to not try to skip over it. We need to be present with people. Skipping over it's a horrible way to respond. Another horrible way to respond is to minimize it by comparison. There's a lot of people hurting right now, so toughen up and keep going. We can mask our own feelings that way, but it's horrible when we go to somebody having a need and somebody says, well, we're all going through stuff. You'll be okay. Seeing how others go through something or have gone through something is actually incredibly helpful. To know how somebody got through a situation can help us get through a situation. But when we don't acknowledge what somebody else is going through simply because others are going through it, we're ignoring what they're going through. And we're saying that what they're going through doesn't matter. It is a stifling manipulation 
of what somebody is experiencing. Because in both situations, we just don't know how to handle it. And so we want to be comfortable, so we make it even unintentionally and maybe not even consciously, we make it more about us than about them. When somebody invites you into their pain, how do you handle that? You be with them. That's it. You be with them. You don't try to fix it. You don't try to change it. Be with them. Christian songwriter Charlie Peacock wrote a song called Now is the Time for Tears. It articulates this concept perfectly. Now is the time for tears. Don't speak, save your words. There's nothing you could say to take this pain away. Don't try so hard. You can just, you can just simply be. Cry with me. Don't try to fix me, friend. That's how you'll comfort me. The closer to the tragedy, the moment that somebody is in, the more the feelings are real. And we need to take example from our Jewish friends who sit Shiva. When somebody dies, we're going to just mourn for five or seven days. We're just going to be present with you. And then after that, we'll figure life out and stuff. But for a time, we're just going to sit in it. And too often, we mourn more of the American culture where somebody dies, we've got to have a funeral, we've got to have a wake, we've got to get this going, here's your food, casserole, we're out of here. And that doesn't help anyone. We need to be present with somebody. In fact, just being present with somebody, one of the greatest things you can do in that moment is just saying, how can I help right now? What do you need? And if they say nothing, then you being there is all you need to do. Be with people. If you are the one in the midst of the garden moment right now, it is an act of strength to invite people into the garden with you. It is an act of weakness to go in alone. Too often in our world, whether it's generational or cultural, how we were raised, whatever reason you want to give to it, toughen up, get through it, to don't bury it, be the tough person. That is helping no one. That helps nobody. And so if you have gone through something, if you're in the midst of something, if you've had tragedy or difficult times in your past, you're in the middle of it now, if you've had, I don't know, a global pandemic that you've lived through, you have had life pushed down on you and you need to invite people into what you're experiencing. Now know that people will not help you perfectly. In fact, when you look at this story that Jesus is, oh yeah, he invited people in, but why would I want to invite people like that in? Any person that you invite into it is going to be like that. Just like you're like that anytime somebody invites you. We're not perfect. And so we cannot have the expectation with one another that people will fix us. We need to invite people to be present with us in the same way they need to be present with us. And so who is someone you can invite into your garden moment? You know, some of us, it's being part of church community. This is why church can't just be come in, sit in a pew, and leave. We need relationships. 
You need to be connected with others. We've said many times in this place, you need to make friends before you need them because you will have that moment and you will need to be carried through. For others, even as much as we need church community, some of us, you need to go and talk with someone. There should not be a stigma against seeing a counselor. There should not be a stigma against talking with somebody about hurt or trials or things that we've experienced. I think in my own life, the number of times I have spoken with a counselor, whether it was my church collapsing or things that I've experienced in college or things growing up, all of the beauty of those moments was not because something's horribly wrong with me or, I mean, people can definitely make a list, but that that there's something wrong. But the reality is, is that I went through this, this person wasn't a part of it, and they care about my well-being they can objectively from a removed situation speak into it and let me see things that maybe I'm not seeing, help me process, heal, and even figure out ways to move forward. We cannot think negatively about that process and we need to embrace it more, but we can't think it's either or. It's both end. We need Christian community. I'm, I'm going to use my pastor voice on this one. We have got to stop being distant from this community. And I'm not just even talking about sitting in the pews. We have to move toward one another. We have to try to build relationships. And all of the reasons why we can talk about why it's hard, we're busy, we're struggling, all these different things, those aren't the excuses to not be in community. Those are the reasons why you need community. Every excuse we make not to try are the reasons why we need to try. We need to be connected with one another. You need, no one can read your mind, but people want to be there for you. And so you need to lean into community. And it's going to be awkward at first. And people, it might feel like people are sleeping on you while you need help. But keep coming back and keep trying. If you need help in that, if you need to talk through that, please reach out to me so we can help you because you are not meant to go through what you're going through alone. Invite people into your experiences. And then the last thing, trust the wisdom of God with your pain and sorrow. Trust the wisdom of God with your pain and sorrow. We have to bring everything in our lives, the good and the bad, to God but we especially have to bring the garden moments. And we see Jesus praying the same thing, really, three times. Slightly different wording, but it's the same prayer. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he prayed a third time and said the same thing again. It's two different parts to this prayer each time. The first part, don't miss this. Because this is the prayer in the Bible we typically don't talk about. Or maybe even realize it was prayed. But Jesus prayed and asked God if there was another way than the cross. Can we, can we do this a different way? He's asking that the pain would end. He's asking that the suffering could be avoided. That the cross would not happen. Can we do this a different way? 
He asked if there was a different way other than the cross. He who knew no sin did not sin by praying, can this be different, God? But then the second part of the prayer, and we cannot separate the two, is that the Son trusted and submitted to the will of the Father. I really don't want to go this route, but I will trust you if this is the route we need to take. Jesus trusted the perfect wisdom of the Father. Job 12, with, with God, excuse me, with him are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Isaiah 40, the everlasting God, the, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Talking about the wisdom of God, J.I. Packer says, wisdom, among other things, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. So when Jesus prays, your will be done, he is trusting how God's perfectly devised, perfect ends will come to be. He is trusting how God sees things, God's focus, how God sees the largest, how God fits things together, and how all things will work together for his good. And so we can pray like Jesus prays. It is permissible to ask God to change things. It is permissible to ask God to go a different way, to remove suffering. However, this must be done with a spirit of trust and submission. Prayer is not a spiritual shopping spree. God, I need this, I need this, I want this to happen, and this lining all up and getting everything. Prayer is the language of conversation and relationship. It is okay to ask God to go a different route as long as we trust the route that he will take. And so we have to approach him with the honesty of our emotions. We have to trust his wisdom and submit to his will. And then we have to ask him to strengthen us to be the children he has made us to be. Take your garden moments to the Lord. Because here's the reality for every single person sitting in here today, every single person watching at home, here is the truth of the matter. You are either in a garden moment right now, you have recently experienced one or can think of one you have gone through, or you will have a garden moment in the future. It's inevitable. It's part of the human reality of life. These garden moments will happen. And so we have to come to the Lord and trust his wisdom. Psalm 13, I think, is the best example of a prayer in these moments. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. 
Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. How long, Lord, I trust in your unfailing love. That's how we have to bring our garden moments to him. As we think about our garden moments, we're going to end today with communion. And so if you're at home, if you want to grab your elements, bread or juice or whatever alternatives you have at home, um, if you're here with us, you can grab, um, if, you don't, if you didn't grab one, just raise your hand and uh, somebody will, bring, everybody have one? Okay, good. Um, while people are at home are getting theirs, let me just, for those who are here, the clear, there's a clear tab and a silver tab. Clear the, pick the, uh, pull the clear tab off first to get the delicious cracker and then pull the silver tab up to get the juice. We always take a moment before we receive communion to prayerfully come before the Lord in what we've heard from his word. To be able to pour out our hearts to him but also to be quiet and hear from him. And maybe, you know what, in this moment, you can give yourself permission for the first time to name what you're feeling. Whether it's something you're going through now or it's something from the past, God, I am, my soul is, and give yourself permission to say that to him. Maybe in this moment, God, I need your wisdom and show me what I need to trust your wisdom in. Maybe you need to be quiet and just let him speak to your heart. But we trust him and he wants to speak to us. And so let's be quiet before him for just a moment and then we'll receive communion together. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would be tender with us. I pray that you would say the things that we need to say and help us to articulate the things that we need to say. Let's be quiet before him. Stand with me. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, 
yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is, this is what communion reminds us of. Jesus knows exactly the emotions that we are experiencing them. He might have been crushed in a different way, but he knows what comes out. And the reality of the cross is that he knows what caused that brokenness, the truth of sin. So he went to the cross to take care of our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin, so that we can have his righteousness given to us, so that we can be restored to him, so that we can have life in him with restoration and healing and purpose and a new identity, a new life. We go to a lot of different things to find healing that only Jesus can provide. Communion reminds us that we need him. It reminds us of our brokenness. It reminds us of his immense love for us. And so I don't know what you are praying about, but God knows better than you do. And he cares. And he wants to care for you. He has at the cross, and he wants today as well. So God, we come before you and we acknowledge your crucifixion. We acknowledge your death in our place. We acknowledge the resurrection, you conquering sin and death. We are grateful that you understand. We are grateful that you are present with us. We are grateful, God, that you love us beyond what we can comprehend. I pray that we would find comfort in you. I pray that we would find healing in you. I pray we would find forgiveness in you. And also that you would show us the opportunities that we have to share those realities with others. We are so thankful for who you are, God. We pray this and we remember everything in your name. Let's receive communion together. grateful for his broken body and we're grateful for his shed blood. We're grateful for the life that we have in him, that he is aware of our frailty and he embraces us within it. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. We're going to close today with a song that's really an invitation to come to Jesus. Maybe you need to come to him and find that new life. Maybe you need to come to him with your garden moment, whatever that is. But his arms are genuinely open wide to us and to you. And he wants you to come to him. And so let's praise him with this last song.